guys can grab a seat. Now, I normally come out and I'm really amped up at the start of a message, but I'm like, that was such a like, calm moment. Like, I, don't, I didn't want to leave it. But good morning, church. And welcome to week three of a series that we're calling The Spirit-Filled Life. And if you've been with us these past couple weeks, you know that we have been talking about the Holy Spirit. We've been talking about who is the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit does, and why that matters to our lives. And, and we have, including today, we have four more weeks, and we're going to be going pretty deep pretty quick. But basically, the premise of this series is, is that it is really good that we recognize God the Father. And it is so, so important that we believe in God the Son, Jesus. But so many people have lived lives where they've recognized the Father and believed in the Son, but they have never accessed God the Spirit. And the premise of this series is really that in doing so, you are missing out on the fullness of what God has made available to you. That God is revealing himself to us tangibly through his Spirit. He wants to make himself known in your life. He wants to be your helper, your provider. But when we distance ourselves from God, the Spirit, we miss out on the beauty of the Spirit-filled life. The Spirit-filled life really simply is a life where we are obedient to God's Spirit. Where when he speaks we obey. When he says jump, we jump. When he says go, we go. When he says pray, we pray. When he says preach, we preach. When he says give, we give. That we will listen to what the Spirit says and be obedient to him as he guides us and helps us and transforms us into the image of Christ. And really what we're talking about through this series in the Spirit-filled life is, is we're calling people back to the life that the early church had in the book of Acts. See, the book of Acts, don't go to the verse yet, but the book of Acts is this wonderful book that it, it goes over and paints this beautiful picture of how God worked in the church at the start of the church. Like after Jesus had died, what were the next steps? How did the church grow? And it paints this beautiful picture of a church that was so full of the Holy Spirit and so obedient to the Spirit that it didn't matter what happened in their lives. They just trusted him. It starts in Acts 2 where the disciples and a group of followers are, are there. This is not Acts 2. Not yet. Not yet. We'll get there. Acts 2, disciples and a group of believers are gathered in the upper room and they're waiting because Jesus had told them that the Holy Spirit would come. And suddenly in a moment, the Holy Spirit came like a wind and tongues of fire split and went over each person and they began to speak in tongues, in foreign languages. And the people outside were like, what is going on? It's early in the morning. Are these people all drunk? And Peter, full of the Spirit, walks out. He's like, no, 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 they're not drunk. This is the Spirit 
of God whom we received through Jesus, and he begins to preach. And on that day, it tells us 3,000 people were saved. Now, I've never preached a message that has had anywhere near that number saved. But through the power of the Spirit, Peter preached a simple gospel, and people were saved. And then it goes on, the next chapter, Peter and John, they're on their way to a prayer meeting, and they see this guy who's, who's lame, and, and, and he's, he's injured, he can't walk, and, and so they, they go up to him, and he's like, in the name of Jesus, rise. The man gets up and is healed, and, and then they're ever the not-Westerners who are tied to their calendars, they're like, well, we'll just skip the prayer meeting, and they begin to preach. And 5,000 more people are saved. And then the next chapter... They're continuing to preach, and so the religious elite of the time are like, well, this is bad. And so they arrest them, and they threaten them. They say, don't you dare preach. And Peter looks at them, and full of the Holy Spirit, he's like, I will obey God, not you. And then they get arrested, and God lets them out of jail, and on and on and on and on. And it, it, it's really, I love this book, because it is a picture of the Spirit-filled life. And the story goes on, I'm not going to dive into the whole book, but the story goes on that the church is persecuted. They are beaten, they are arrested, they are killed. All these things happen to them, but they don't care. Because they have the Holy Spirit. And I've been reading this book um, over the last couple weeks, and, and as I was reading it, I saw this verse in Acts 9, verse 31. It comes one chapter after Stephen is killed by the religious elite. And it says this, Meanwhile, the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, the three provinces of Israel, had peace. Remember, persecution was happening. One of their members had just been murdered for his faith. But they had peace and was built up. Living in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. Now, I'm not going to dig into this too deeply, but fear of the Lord, we often think of that, we read that and we're like, oh, I should be a terrified of God? No, 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 that's, it's, fear of the Lord is an ancient Near East saying that means to have reverence for God and love for others. So we can sum it up really simply, to love God and love people. That's what fear of the Lord means. And they lived in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And I read that verse and I was like, what, okay, what, what does it mean? What does comfort of the Holy Spirit mean? And so I looked it up in the Greek and it's, it, it's a word that is very similar to, to the word we looked at last week, parakletos, which means, which is what Jesus used to describe the Holy Spirit's role as helper, comforter, provider, protector, advocate, etc., etc., etc. And it's an active word meaning they relied on the Holy Spirit. So loving God and loving others in the midst of persecution, they relied on the Holy Spirit, and so they had peace, they were built up, and they increased in numbers. And you see, this is the Spirit-filled life. A life where we are relying on the Holy Spirit. That church in Acts, they suffered so much persecution that we don't have to experience. So much ridicule. People hated them because they were Christians, and they did not care. 
because they knew that their God was greater than anything others could do to them. So I want to encourage you this week to read the book of Acts. It's your homework assignment, if you want to think of it that way. Read the book of Acts, or at least start reading the book of Acts. Because over the next three weeks, we are going to be diving deep. And it's going to get uncomfortable, and it's going to be great. We're going to be talking about fruits of the Spirit, baptism of the Spirit, gifts of the Spirit, things that Christians don't like to talk about. We're going to be digging into it. Because God has something for your life that is greater than you could imagine, and he has given you access to his Spirit so we can live a Spirit-filled life. But before we get there this morning, I want to take some time and discuss three things that Christians kind of either get worked up about or should get worked up about but don't. Three things that we need to be mindful of when it comes to the Holy Spirit. And and we're talking about being mindful of the Spirit. And I want to talk about grieving the Holy Spirit, quenching the Holy Spirit, and blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Now, as a pastor, I often will have people come to me and they'll ask questions. They'll be like, I was reading in my Bible here and I read this and I didn't understand it. What does it mean? And I'm a huge Bible nerd, so I love it. And if, if I don't know the answer, I'm like, okay, give me, let, let me research it. I'll get back to you. I, I just, I love it. Um, because I, I love digging into what the Bible says. But, but often, one of the most common questions that I'll get is, is when somebody is reading through the book of Matthew or Mark or Luke, and they come to Matthew 12 or Mark 3 or Luke 12, and, and they read this passage, this really harsh saying from Jesus that immediately makes them freak out and wonder if they're even saved. And it's, Matthew digs into it most in depth, and, and, and in Matthew, Jesus says in, Mark 12, or in Matthew 12, Therefore I tell you, people will be forgiven for every sin and blasphemy, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Now let's unpack this a little bit, because if you don't know what blasphemy means, that's okay. It's a really, really churchy word. But blasphemy basically means to disrespect God or something that is considered holy. For instance, if we believe that Erica's guitar here was a relic that Jesus had handed down to this church, we don't because we're not a cult, but if we did... If we believe this guitar was holy, Jesus had handed it down, it was a a relic from God, and and it was just anointed and amazing, and then I were to come along and be like, wow, what an ugly guitar. I'm kidding, Erica, wherever you are. It's a great guitar. But if I were just, what a horrible guitar. No one should ever play this. And if I were to then pick it up and smash it, that would be blasphemy. Disrespecting something that is holy or disrespecting God. So Jesus is saying, do not blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Do not disrespect the Holy Spirit. Now, many people, when we read this, we immediately think of every single time in our lives 
that we've thought a negative thought about God, that we've said a negative word about God, or any time we've ever sinned, and then we're like, oh no, I'm screwed. I must be going to hell. And it's, it's, a, common, it's a common thing, that's why we're addressing it. But I want to alleviate some fears here this morning, and I also want to teach you a really basic principle about reading the Bible. See, when you read the Bible, we have to be mindful that the Bible is an ancient manuscript that was written to, by a specific person to a specific person or group of people. So when we read the Bible, there are layers of context that help us understand. There's the literary context, what comes before and after. There's the cultural context, the mindset people would have had. There, there's the, the geographical context, like they wouldn't understand minus 40 degree weather, so the Bible never talks about it. There's the scientific context, where God, he never makes a statement about science in the Bible. He just uses what they believed at the time. There's all of these different layers of context that, that make us, or help us to understand what the Bible is saying. Because in order to understand what the message of God is, we need to be mindful of what God is saying, what the original author intended to say to the original audience. Or to put it in the words of uh, my first year uh, hermeneutics prof, Mark McKnight, said, text without, a pre or without context is merely pretext. There we go, Vanguard students in the front. So we need to understand. We can't, when it comes to the Bible, we can't just take a single verse and then use that to prove something about God. That's how cults are formed, literally. So when it comes to this passage in Matthew 12, the first thing we need to do is look back at what happens before Jesus makes this statement. Because Jesus didn't make this statement into a vacuum. He wasn't like having a really good day and watching the sunset and his disciples come up behind him and he's like, if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you will never be forgiven. No, no, no. What's, so what's the context? So if we throw it up, Matthew 12 says, then they brought to Jesus a demon-possessed man who is blind and mute and he cured him so that the one who was mute um, could speak and see. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees, the religious leaders, heard of it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons, that this man casts out demons. Okay, Jesus just healed a man and cast out demons through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Pharisees, the religious elite, are like, no, 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 it wasn't by the Holy Spirit, it was by a demon. And so Jesus he says he knew what they were thinking, and he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And he just starts to rip into them and go on and on and on. If we go to the next slide, and, and he says, therefore I tell you, People will be forgiven for every sin and blasphemy, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. 
Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in this age to come. I tell you on the day of judgment, you will have to give an account for every careless word you utter. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Did you catch that? Context is that Jesus cures a man by the power of the Holy Spirit, and then the religious elite of the day have the audacity to say, no, 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 that's not the Holy Spirit. He's demon-possessed. And Jesus just responds, don't you dare disrespect the Holy Spirit. Don't you dare blaspheme the Holy Spirit. It's a context. It's important. Now, if you're worried that that's you, I'm just going to help you out here. See, every Bible scholar that I can find on record agrees that this verse is talking about people who reject the power of God and refuse to believe in Jesus. They reject the Holy Spirit and refuse to believe the testimony of the Spirit of Jesus. And so the word is... Not that if you ever think bad thoughts about the Holy Spirit, you'll never be forgiven. It's that if you reject the Holy Spirit continually in your life, you have hardened your heart to God. And so there's no forgiveness. But if you believe in Jesus, well, your heart is not hard towards God, and so you're, you're good. Or to quote a theologian, R.T. Kendall, he puts it this way. He says, how can you know you have not committed the unpardonable sin? If you can testify from your heart that Jesus is God, worry no more. If you believe in Jesus, that Jesus is the Son of God who came and died on the cross to save you from your sins and rose from the dead, then you're good. Don't need to worry about that anymore. But the two things we do need to be mindful of as believers, is grieving and quenching the Holy Spirit. Now, in 1 Thessalonians 5, if you can throw it up, Paul says, Paul says this. He says, See that none of you repairs evil, repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to all. And he's giving this list of basically good things to do and bad things to do. And he says, Rejoice, or, um, yeah, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Holy Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good and abstain from every form of evil. Now that word quench there, in the Greek, it's a word that literally means to put out a fire. Like if you're out on a camping trip and you, you're being a responsible human being, you had a campfire and you're done, you get a bucket of water and you pour it over the fire. 
you quench the fire. And that's basically what Paul is saying here. So, for instance, you have this candle. You have it lit. There's a fire. Now, to quench the fire, maybe I'm going to move that away. That's better. Quench the fire would be to do that. It's quenched. Paul says, do not quench the Holy Spirit. Now, in the Bible, we see that the Holy Spirit is often described as a fire. In Acts 2, it says that when the Holy Spirit came, he came like a fire. It's going to take forever to light again. Oh. 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 I do have a second one just in case. And the Holy Spirit came like a fire. And fire in the Bible often describes power. Describes the power of the Holy Spirit to work in us and perform miracles through us to heal us and also to transform us. And Paul says, be careful do not quench the Holy Spirit. Now, when Paul wrote this to the church in Thessalonica, we're not exactly sure what the situation was in that church. But based on this passage, he says, do not quench the Spirit, do not despise prophecies. Based on this passage, it makes me think that likely in the church of Thessalonica, they, there had been a situation that had gone on. And likely, based on history, we know that a lot of the early churches, they were spirit-filled. They operated in the gifts of the spirit, which included things like miracles, healing, wisdom, knowledge, tongues, and prophecy. But at the same time, we know that as, as people operated in the gifts of the spirit, there was also people who were trying to deceive believers. They were performing counterfeit gifts. And so likely based on this verse, what we can assume is the church in Thessalonica, they were operating in the gifts of the Spirit, the Spirit was moving powerfully, and suddenly there became these counterfeit prophets in their church. And the church leaders were probably like, whoa, well, we don't want these counterfeit, so you know what, this is easiest. Let's just, just no more Holy Spirit. That's good. And Paul says, do not quench the Holy Spirit. Do not quench the Holy Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Which is to say that when you see somebody operating in the gifts of the Spirit, Test it. Does it line up with who God says he is in the Bible? Because God is consistent. He will never change. So if somebody prophesies over you that God hates you, well, you can reject them as a false prophet because it's not true. The Bible tells us that God loves us. 
Does the Holy Spirit tell you, yeah, yeah, this isn't genuine? Or especially when it comes to prophecy, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 14 that prophecy is to exhort, it's to encourage, it's to build up, it's to console. And so prophecy that doesn't do one of those things, it's not from God. Paul says, test everything, but do not quench the Holy Spirit. Now, unfortunately, this is one of those things that many Christians have done over the years through the form of a belief system and doctrine that's called cessationism, which is essentially the belief that the gifts of the Spirit are dead and no longer in operation. And the argument is that Jesus gave us the gifts. Oh, brought a second one just out in just in case. But the belief system says that Jesus gave the gifts to his first disciples to help them spread the gospel. But now we don't need them because everyone's Christian, right? And it's also a belief system, I'm just going to swap out. It's also a belief system that says that the gifts died out with the first disciples. That they died out with the apostles. Even though we have hundreds of years of church history that say otherwise. And it's a belief system that honestly is from the pit of hell. Because it puts God in a box and says, oh, yeah, yeah, God did those things, but he doesn't do them anymore because the God we serve can change. And really, simply, I think it's born out of fear because people are afraid of counterfeit gifts operating in the church, and they are afraid of people being deceived by the enemy, so they say, no more gifts! But people put more faith in the devil to deceive them than in God to protect them. I don't know about you, but the Bible I read says that Jesus defeated death, hell, and the grave. Satan is a dethroned monarch. That he is powerless compared to God. And also, just simply put, if you're worried about counterfeit gifts, well, clearly there's a genuine because no one will go out and try and buy a knockoff Darien Shafar handbag. They don't exist. <laughs> but people will buy knockoff Gucci and Louis Vuitton. If there's a counterfeit, there must be a genuine. And the Bible I read says that God is more powerful than anything else. I heard a pastor, I can't remember who it was. I've been searching for this quote for a week now. Um, but he, he put it this way. If I'm praying for somebody to be healed in Jesus' name and Satan comes and does it, oh, we got big problems. Much bigger problems than counterfeit gifts. But Jesus is more powerful. So Paul says, do not quench the spirit, but test everything. Do not act as if the Spirit can't do things that the Bible says he can do. But test everything. I read this quote in a book by Bill Johnson forever ago. 
He says this, following the leading of the Holy Spirit can present us with a dilemma. For he never contradicts his words, but he is very comfortable contradicting our understanding of it. None of us understand the Bible fully. And the Holy Spirit is like, that's fine. I'm just going to contradict what you believe. None of us have a full grasp of Scripture, but we all have the Holy Spirit. To follow him, we must be willing to follow off the map, to go beyond what we know. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. And then the second thing we need to be careful and mindful of is grieving the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a principle that, if I'm honest, um, it's not one that I was very familiar of even two months ago. But I was reading a a book on the Holy Spirit in preparation for this message, and and in this book, the author, R.T. Kendall, he he starts talking about grieving the Spirit and how we can grieve the Spirit. And I was like, what is going on here? And so I looked into it, and I found in Ephesians 4, Paul, he's again giving us a list of do's and don'ts. Do this as a Christian. Don't do this as a Christian. And And he says this. He says, those who steal must give up stealing. Rather, let them labor, do good work with their own hands so as to have something to share with the needy. Let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only what is good for building up as there is need, so that your words may give grace to those who hear. This is just context. And says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with which you are marked with a seal for the day of redemption. Put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander together with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. It's this list of do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this. This is good, this is bad. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. That word to grieve in the Greek, it's, it's the Greek word lepeo which is a word that literally means to experience deep-seated sorrow, sadness, and pain. Often in ancient Greek literature, it's used to describe childbirth. And in the Bible, it's used to describe pretty much every time somebody dies in the New Testament. Jesus felt grief, lepeo, when his cousin John was murdered by King Herod. The disciples felt grief, lepeo, when Jesus died on the cross. Which tells me a few things about the Holy Spirit. One, he's a person because, you know, a candle doesn't feel grief. And two, our actions can hurt the Holy Spirit. He can feel pain. Our actions can cause pain to the Holy Spirit. And as I was researching this, I found that this this word is mentioned twice in the Bible, once in the New Testament in Greek and once in the Old Testament in Hebrew. And in Isaiah 63, we find this passage where, where Isaiah, he's speaking about the children of Israel, how God took them from slavery in Egypt, he led them out of the land, took them by the hand, and he was leading them to the promised land, and then they rejected him. It's basically how the story goes. And in the summary, Isaiah says this, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he became their enemy. He himself fought against them. 
And I was like, what does that mean? He became their enemy. That word literally means, like, if my wife and I were to be having a fight and it were to get heated and I were just like, I'm going to be right and you're going to be right, and she were just to turn her back to me and walk away, that's what that word means. It means to distance yourself from someone who has no interest in reconciliation. He became their enemy. They rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. And so he distanced himself. So what grieves the Holy Spirit? Well, according to Isaiah 63, rebellion against God. When we rebel against God, when God says, do this, and we're like, no. Or when he says, don't do this, and we're like, nah, I want to do that. When God's like, this is what I'm calling you to, and you're like, no, 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 I'm going to do my own thing. Rebelling against God, against his will, against his word, against what he says. Rebellion against God grieves the Holy Spirit, and according to Isaiah 3, or 63, it causes God to distance himself. And I always think it, about it in terms of less God like, ooh, you're dirty, I'm going to run away. Because we know the Holy Spirit is in us and he'll remain with us. But I think of it more as when we sin, we create this gap, this distance where we walk away from God. And according to Ephesians 4, the list can go on. Now, Paul doesn't explicitly say that all of these things grieve the Holy Spirit, but most scholars believe that, that w the use of the word in the middle of the verse is referring to all the things before and after. That things like bitterness, wrath, Anger, malice, theft, evil, unforgiveness, impurity, and lust. That all these things grieve the Holy Spirit. Or let me put it really, really simple. Sin grieves the Holy Spirit. And I know this is true in my life when, say, I'm, I'm having a time where I'm worshiping God. Say I'm driving down the road because all of my bad things come out in, while driving. I'm driving down the road. I'm worshiping God. I'm connecting with God. I'm hearing God's voice. And then somebody's driving 40 in a 60 zone. I just feel anger rise up. And it's like, oh, the holy, I'm not hearing God anymore. So I've grieved the Holy Spirit. So he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. What grieves the Spirit is sin. But here's the good news. If you've ever grieved the Holy Spirit, or you've ever quenched the Holy Spirit, the God we serve is not vengeful. He's not waiting to throw the book at you. He loves you and he forgives you. See, 1 John 1 puts it this way. It says, if we confess our sins... He who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if you've ever grieved the Holy Spirit or quenched the Holy Spirit, good news is God is willing to forgive. All you need to do is confess. Confession really simply is the act of saying, hey God, I'm sorry. I got mad at that person who is driving 40 in a 60 zone, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. God's like, great. I forgive you. It's that easy. He's not holding a grudge. 
Now, sometimes confession, he'll tell you, oh, well, now you need to go and apologize to that person. Oh, that's great, because walking in the light sometimes requires confession before God and others. But if you've ever grieved or quenched the Holy Spirit, there's forgiveness for you. If you've ever feel like you've blasphemed the Holy Spirit, well, there's forgiveness as long as you believe in Christ before you die. God wants to forgive you. See, I believe that God is calling us all to live spirit-filled lives. He's calling us to live like the church in Acts, that when, when God spoke, when the Holy Spirit spoke, they didn't hesitate, they didn't wait, they didn't question, they obeyed. And because they loved God and loved others and relied on the Holy Spirit, they had peace in the midst of persecution. They were built up, they were strengthened, they were encouraged, and they grew. See, the Holy Spirit, He wants to work in each and every one of our lives. He wants to transform us into the image of Christ to produce the fruits of the Spirit in our lives, to use us to better the world. But a Spirit-filled life doesn't happen by accident. We have to be intentional. Living a Spirit-filled life means that on good days and bad days, we say, Holy Spirit, I trust you. It's a really bad day today, God. I don't know what you're going to do. I don't know how you're going to come through because this situation is so messed up and I've got no solution. But Holy Spirit, I trust you. Oh, Holy Spirit, you, you want me to pray for that person? But, but it, it's awkward. There's people standing around there. But I, I'll go and I'll do it. Oh, you want me to go and do that? Okay, Holy Spirit, I, I don't know how I'm going to be able to do that. But I trust you. Have to be intentional. Let's stand together. We're going to close in a moment here, but before we do, if you're here and, and you want to live a spirit filled life, maybe you have been living a spirit filled life, or maybe you want to, but if that's you, I want to encourage you to put your hands out like this. This is a posture of receiving. It doesn't matter what you've done or what you've said or what you've believed. God is willing to forgive. He loves you. And you have access to more than you could ever imagine. But God is a gentleman. He won't force his way into your life. You have to let him in. I heard somebody say it this way. You can have as much of God as you want but no more than you're willing to receive. So if you want to be filled with the Spirit, you want to live a Spirit-filled life, I'm going to pray in a moment, but I want to encourage you, just say this with me. Holy Spirit, I repent of everything I've done that has grieved you. I repent of all anger, unforgiveness, lust, 
insecurity, hopelessness, fear, and sin. Holy Spirit, I repent of every lie I've believed that has caused me to quench you. Holy Spirit, lead me, guide me. I trust you. Father God, I just pray. Jesus, I thank you that you're a God who loves and you're a God who forgives. That is your default. Lord, I thank you that you hear the cries of our heart and you honor the requests of those who serve you. So, Father, I, I pray that you will help us be people who are filled with your spirit that we won't grieve your spirit, that we won't quench your spirit out of fear, but we will trust you first. God, lead us. Do what only you can do in our lives. Pray this in your